0: Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar.
1: Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans.
2: And I'm Matt Smith. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at Season 1, Episode 7, Pharsalus. It was written by David Frankel and directed by Tim Van Patten. It was originally broadcast on October 9th, 2005. In this episode, we saw Varinus and Hullo shipwrecked on an island, an anticlimactic showdown between Caesar and Pompey, and the beginning of a relationship, unwarranted, between Servilia and Octavia. Hello there, mean you you Hello. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You inserted that word unwarranted.
2: (laughs) I think I just kind of showed my hand as to what I thought of this episode, which was surprisingly memorable, but nothing the way that I wanted it to be.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, that's interesting to hear what you didn't like about
2: it. (laughs) What did you think of this episode? Did you like it?
1: Uh, Yes, I did like it. I had some reservations, which were mostly around understandable things like they couldn't show huge uh, amounts of the battle, the Battle Mm -hmm. of Farsalus, which is a really, you know, really significant battle in the civil wars. What we saw of that was very impressionistic. It was a bit like something from a documentary. I think it stands out because the production values are so high throughout most of this, but for the battles, they were spending it on costumes and sets in rome
2: yeah we spent all our budget on costumes and an impressive roman set and all we got was these lousy flashes of swords and yelling in italian Mm -hmm. as my subtitles for the episode said (laughs)
1: That's a good one (laughs) Just random yelling in Italian Yes (laughs) (laughs) Um, They should have been yelling in Latin I know, Um, I know (laughs) (laughs) I thought it had a really dramatic ending Which we'll discuss Mm. um, But was very much warranted To use your language Yes I wasn't that keen on the Servilia and Octavia relationship I'm somewhere on the same wavelength as you there I'm not really sure what it serves Except maybe some um, prurience. Mm. So,
2: I mean, you know, slight spoilers, it serves nothing. I think it was just to give those two characters something to do and some reason to get back to Rome for this episode, even if it's just briefly. I mean, we see one brief blink and you miss it scene with Niobe kind of becoming friends with her sister again. Mm. Uh, but that's it for Niobe for this episode. And the rest of the Rome stuff is a, a bit of scene w- with Artia, And this whatever it is with Servilia and Octavia.
1: I guess that it's to keep the power play between the two matriarchs alive.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: You know I can never remember what's coming next unless it's from the history books. So I don't know where that's going, because <laughs> that's not from the history books, obviously. Mm. So I, I'm always uh, surprised by what comes up with them. But that's what it's looking like to me, that, that let's not forget that Artia is still trying to manipulate and Servilia is still trying to get revenge, presumably.
2: Yeah, sure. And I mean, it's it's the kind of hazard of having a big ensemble cast. You know, you need to have some of those characters in there to, to break away to and to, you know, break up the scene changes between What's going on with Pompey and what's going on with Caesar? Anyway, so this episode begins uh, with Varinus and Pullo somehow miraculously being the only survivors of a shipwreck on a very small nameless island in the Mediterranean, somewhere between Italy and Greece. Varinus writes a letter to Niobe on a rock, (laughs) assumably leaves it there. They lash a raft together of bodies and float to safety.
1: Yeah, this is Roman ingenuity, presumably. They see a corpse floating and then decide this is a sort of I don't know, human body engineering, a way of uh, getting off the island. I think I was quite surprised by the fact that they get shipwrecked and therefore they're not at Pharsalus. Mm. They're not at the battle. I sort of assumed they would be, as they are warriors.
2: Probably to do with budget. If you had Verena Semploi there, you would probably feel obligated to show more of the battle going on. Maybe so, yeah. Otherwise, this entire battle takes place in tents, um, with praying, with planning. All that we see is them strapping on their breastplates and going out, then coming back in and going, well, that was one hell of a battle, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was, in my faux British accent.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I really like the arming scene. I don't know whether this is the place to discuss it, but the, the seeing them both getting ready for battle... Let's mm. discuss it now, since I've brought it up. Yeah. Um, all I wanted to say about it is that it's. Uh, it reminded me of a scene that's very typical of epic poetry. So in, say, Homer's Iliad, before a warrior goes out, you have that detailed description of, and then he put on his breastplate, and then he put on his greaves, and then he took up his spear. And Given that this is kind of epic television, mm. it seemed quite appropriate that they were maybe drawing on that. But, of course, given that we've also got uh, certain hollywood traditions it might also be drawing on that idea of the almost the makeover yeah yeah made over from a politician to a warrior
2: well well i hate to say but instantly when you said about you know getting ready and putting on all the things and everything like that i thought if this was a disney movie that's where you would have had a musical number about the princess Mm. getting dressed and ready for the ball or something like that or or mulan dressing up in her armor to go to war and you know and i'll make a man out of you and all that song and dance
1: Somebody has worked up a, a soundtrack to HBO Rome out there somewhere with with that kind of uh, feel to it.
2: I want Caesar's Gallic War the musical now. <laughs> so, well, um, given
1: what happens to Pompey in this episode, I'm not sure Disney are going to go down that track.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about, in vaguely chronological order, Pompey and his generals. So they're discussing uh, before the battle even happens how they're going to divide the spoils of war which I found interesting for a few reasons. Primarily that they are talking about dividing up the Roman Empire as if they are conquering somewhere.
0: Torquatus should have something there. A praetorship, perhaps. If Torquatus is given high office, then Varro must be given the same, else we'll see no end of trouble. But then what did he give Lavienus? Macedonia. Bithynia. <laughs> Macedonia to Libo, plum for your people. And porridge for the rest, eh? Macedonia and Bithynia are not yet ours to bestow. You are cooking rabbits that have not been caught. Oh, but a particular rabbit is cornered, starving, has lost near 2,000 men. <laughs> I, I think we may safely say that here is a rabbit ready for the pot. <laughs>
2: it surprised me that they were talking about Rome in those sort of terms
1: it does go against the conventions of the, the Roman Republic, which they're mm. meant to be standing up for.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it also, of course, dramatically means they're kind of counting their chickens before they should do because they don't know if they're going to win this. And so, somebody says it at one point, don't they? I, I can't remember which character it is. It says we haven't won the battle yet. It's probably Cato. So that idea that they are, that they, they have a kind of arrogant attitude to what's coming up, they're presumptuous. Mm. But I think there's also a convention in movies about dividing up the empire is a, is a sort of autocratic thing to do. So it happens at the end of Fall of the Roman Empire, which itself is playing on much later history that you know about from the imperial period, that yeah. whole kind of flogging bits of the empire off. I think there's a bit of touching on that here. They're not selling them as such. They're just giving, as you say, giving them a spoils.
2: Mm. So there was an interesting name drop there that I heard um, in the episode Which was that they're going to give Macedonia to Labianus As a mm. reward for his service to Pompey Or somebody suggests it at least So Labianus was there at Pharsalus And he commanded the cavalry for Pompey yeah. That name drop is from Caesar's Gallic Wars And also yes. from his civil wars So he was one of Caesar's main generals during the Gallic Wars
1: so he has changed sides.
2: Would he see it that way? Anyway, that's probably yeah. A... He, he
1: is, he, yeah, yeah. You're quite right. He would see it as a defending the republic, mm. but given that he has been much fostered by Caesar in Caesar's Gallic Wars, Caesar would definitely see it as betrayal. Labienus, uh, according to Plutarch in the Life of Pompey, Labienus is supposed to have taken an oath that he would not come back unless he routed the enemy. So he's making big claims as well.
2: So we also get in this scene that Pompey is reluctant to win this by force. Cato strangely and Cicero are the ones who convince him that a show of force is the only thing that Caesar will respond to here. Uh, So he's still trying to make peace right up to the end. Does that strike you as being a realistic kind of stance from him?
1: There are indications that both sides hesitate to engage. Uh, Certainly, Cassius Dio, in book 41 of his history, tells us that there are several things going on. First of all, he says, um, a little different from this, that Pompey thinks the war is already over. Mm-hmm. And he's he's actually taken the title, which would be conferred on him by his troops, of imperator, general, ruler. Okay. Uh, but he doesn't <laughs> boast about it because it's a civil war, which seems strange to me that he would think it's already over. Because so far, he's kind of on the run. I guess he's won at Dyrrachium. Hmm. But what Dio says is at this point he sh- basically he should have sailed to Italy and taken it, but he doesn't because he refuses to make war on Italy all right so there's all of that going on in the background that the HVRM doesn't touch on
0: mm-hmm. but
1: what Dio also gives us is that um both Caesar and Pompey hesitate to engage and Dio doesn't know exactly why, but he theorizes that it's because. Neither can bear to be beaten by an equal, but they also don't want to take any concessions. So they kind of see themselves as, you know, if you, if you're beaten by someone better, then I guess at least you can think, well, I lost to somebody with greater forces or you know mm. a greater reputation. But this is my equal, so so there's a hesitation there. I think what Dios getting at here suggests that. Ancient historians were puzzled by this as well, why Pompey mm. didn't want to just go in and kind of capitalize on his previous victory.
2: Pompey was very much the favoured to win this battle, though, wasn't he? I mean, mm. the, the way that Caesar tells it, and again, this could just come directly back to what you were talking about, Caesar says that he has 22,000 troops in his civil wars. Uh, at this time, Pompey has doubled that. Mm. And Caesar very much laid out that this was a battle that he expected Pompey to win quite easily.
1: Yeah, it's not equal in terms of the troops that they have, but I guess uh, what Dio's getting at is that hes they view each other. Look, this is Dio looking from quite a lot, lot later, looking back mm. and trying to work out what was going on for these two generals, that uh, they kind of have a lot of respect for one another. That's basically what he's saying, too much respect to want to lose to them.
2: I get you. I get you. Not necessarily equals in this pitched battle, but very much not equals at
1: this moment.
2: One on one on the floor of the senate.
1: And you know the the show does play on that, doesn't it? This idea that Caesar Caesar kind of thinks he's doomed.
2: Hmm. Yeah, he does very much so. So we get a um, a scene later on of uh, Caesar doing a a blood offering. And what I'm sure the subtitles said was praying in Latin because I couldn't make a lot of it out.
1: (laughs) I couldn't make out the words either. I played it several times and I did look at the subtitles there hoping that there would be some, but there weren't. It wasn't very clear, was it? It was quite impressionistic, the audio at that point.
2: So what do we know about the Battle of Pharsalus then? Uh, We've got quite a few sources that tell us about the event. The most directly related one Of course as we've said is is Caesar's own Text on the civil wars We've
1: got a long description of Pharsalus in Caesar's uh, Civil wars in book 3 We've got Appian We've got Dio, Dio doesn't give us much Detail at all and a little bit in Plutarch Mm. so yeah A fair few sources Of course Caesar's Civil wars version is very much from his point Of view Mm. and it's Quite likely that all of the other sources draw On him so we get story of the battle that pretty much chimes with it. What we do know is pretty much what Pompey describes afterwards. So it's in Civil War, book three, chapters 88 to 95, if anyone wants to go read Caesar's account. What happens is that Caesar's cavalry is forced to retreat at one point because Pompey drives them back. But Seems like they probably do that deliberately. So it looks like Pompey is breaking through with his cavalry. Pompey's cavalry kind of go off chasing them. And that leaves a gap on the left flank of Pompey's troops. So then Caesar's surprise fourth line of infantry just circle around and cut into them. Mm. So they manage to charge through. So Caesar has some really good tactics up his sleeve, despite having far fewer troops. Okay, and that seems to be pretty much I don't think they go into the fourth line of the infantry, but in the description that Pompey gives later on in this episode to Varanus, where he kind of draws it with a stick in the sand, yeah. that's pretty much what he describes.
2: yeah, okay, so it's pretty much the the fault of Pompey's cavalry that he lost this, which uh, was commanded by Labianus.
1: Oh, yes, lest we forget. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe he was on Caesar's side all along. At this point, it might be good to talk about another uh, slight narrative aspect of Caesar's civil wars and the Battle of Pharsalus, and that is that we've got an account of a soldier who Caesar calls Titus Pullo. mm. And there's a question mark over whether this is the same Titus Pullo that he talked about in his Gallic Wars now come through to this text.
1: Yeah. So the Titus Pullo from the Gallic Wars is the one we're drawing on
2: in HBO Rome. Rome. Yeah,
1: The Titus Pulleo, it is spelt differently. So Pullo is Mm -hmm. P-U-L-L-O. Pulleo is P-U-L, just one L-E-I-O. Yeah, the speculation about whether they are the same person.
2: Yeah. Now, Um, just to kind of clarify where that speculation comes from, Wikipedia says they're the same person. (laughs) Don't know what source they're drawing on. Your landmark Caesar says they are definitely different people.
1: Not to be confused with. Mm. It's the line you always get in commentaries. Don't go into detail about why. Well, I, I mean, I would say the spelling being different would make me suspicious of them being the same person anyway. Puleo is fighting for the Pompeian side too, we should know. Titus Puleo, through whose efforts Gaius Antonius' army had been betrayed, led the fight against us with brilliant bravery. So there's Caesar crediting someone on the other side being Hmm. brilliantly brave. He still loses though. He (laughs) continues, even so the courage of our men prevailed.
2: So there you go. That would be interesting if he changed sides, but possibly, probably, maybe not Pullo
1: definitely doesn't change sides in our narrative because he's not even at Pharsalus.
2: Mm. That'd make an interesting series if he was, though, if he was at Pharsalus but on Pompey's side. So Pompey loses this battle and seems to be quite resigned to this being a loss but at the same time obligated to continue resisting Caesar. That seems to be the best way to phrase that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, he sort of shrinks, doesn't he, in his stature at this point in in the series. Goes into disguise as, a, as an ordinary citizen.
0: I propose we make for Amphiboli. Have men and money there, we can go by sea to Egypt. Ptolemy's children are loyal friends of mine. Perhaps... Perhaps it's better we do not travel together. So Mm.
1: he looks defeated to me, but do you think he's continuing the fight? He looks like he's running away. He talks about going to Africa and uh, there's a comment made that they're going to run out of continents. So he's Brutus makes that comment.
2: Mm. But he's still going to Egypt where he's got allies who will give him support. So I think that, I think that that's, yeah, well, yeah, (laughs) yeah, great support. So I think that that's some aspect of that kind of plan to continue. And I think I use the correct word when I say obligated. He doesn't want to, but he knows that somebody, that since he's alive, he's going to rally soldiers around him. Hmm. But at the same time, Cato is very pragmatic in those scenes and realises that Pompey has kind of seen his last battle and is not very useful at this point. So he and Scipio go to Africa uh, and make their own way there. Uh, (laughs) Because we don't want to be with the guy with the big target on his back, (laughs) which is probably smart. And um, meanwhile, you've got Cicero and Brutus deciding to surrender to Caesar. They've essentially had enough of fighting. Definitely Cicero's had enough of the battles.
1: They are. Even before we get there, I just have to say that one of my favorite lines of this episode was Caesar saying, Tell them Caesar has won.
2: Mm.
1: Which I loved because he talks about himself in the third person, which we know he does in his <laughs> war commentaries.
0: Send to Rome, tell them Caesar has won.
1: I've decided that is a reference to his war commentary, and it might be like they've obviously done the homework. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're surrendering to a man who thinks of himself as uh, a character in a book. <laughs>
2: in the Asterix comics Caesar talks about himself in third person all the time as well
1: yeah so he's famous for it I mean they do the sensible thing surrendering of course because Caesar has roundly won they know they can probably get mercy at this point or they suspect Mm. it's at least possible if they don't continue the struggle Uh, I like Brutus's uh armor in this section he's got a breastplate on it with um Brutus Libertas, and a female, Is it? I think it's just her face.
2: Yes, from, it's a face in uh, profile. From
1: memory, yeah, in profile, which must be the goddess Libertas, which is going to be a reference to his family's claim that they, they hail from the Brutus who um, founded the Republic in the 6th century BCE. So, you know, this is something that Brutus plays on Uh, and we'll play on later, that he is somebody who brings liberty to Rome, defends Rome, he's a defender of the Republic. And it Mm. makes sense for him because, of course, he he is here and going to continue to style himself as a defender of the Republic.
2: Now, in the texts that we've got, and I've mostly been looking at Plutarch here, so the life of Brutus and the life of Cicero, Uh, who both get their own handy, slightly conflicting biographies at times. Brutus and Cicero do surrender to Caesar at this point vaguely, but they surrender separately. But I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, narratively for the episode, it makes sense for them just to rock up on horseback in the same thing. Yep. But I did kind of like how they correctly portrayed, essentially, the reaction that they got from Caesar when they surrendered to him.
0: Brutus! Cicero, how happy I am to see you. I thought you were dead. Sir, I'm come here honourably, with no request for mercy, to surrender my arms and my horses as this... Shh, we have no talk of surrender. We've merely quarrelled a
1: little. Now we are friends again, eh? Caesar's much more pleased to see Brutus but he's also pleased to see Cicero. And actually, that wasn't reflected so much here as because Plutarch tells us that Cicero felt shame, uh, chapter 39, but that he says there's no need for him to feel this because when Caesar saw him approaching from far, he got down and embraced him and journeyed on for many furlongs, conversing with him alone. This is from an old translation, isn't it, from furlongs? <laughs> <laughs> so he's pleased to see him too, but... We get a bit more with Brutus that Caesar not only pardons him but actually made him a highly honoured companion. So kind of takes him to his bosom, which I'm sure is playing on that rumour that we've already refuted pretty much that Brutus might be Caesar's son.
2: Mm. Uh, He he was also delighted at his safe escape, (laughs) which I have to say came across in the episode. Caesar Mm. was so happy to see Brutus and Cicero, which kind of you know rang as being a bit realistic for him you know those two coming back to him makes him legitimate you know at the very least he can go back into rome with two key senators at his side both saying we were wrong about caesar
1: yeah and i mean if you think about it he's now got brutus who is from an incredibly i mean caesar's from a really high-born patrician family too Mm. but uh brutus comes from this family that apparently goes back to the beginning of the Republic. And Mm. of course, he's got his relationship with Servilia, which as far as we can tell from biographies and other histories has not not ended in acrimony as it (laughs) has in the the series. But also he's got the most brilliant orator in Rome now at his side. Mm. Now, we know with the benefit of hindsight that Cicero's oratory... Cicero's oratory continues to be very strong, but the amount of power he has, uh, you know, it never quite gets to the heights of when he was consul in 63 again. But still, it's a coup for Caesar, no Mm. doubt about it.
2: And I very much like the scene uh, straight after that where he takes Cicero and Brutus into a hall filled with soldiers and kind of sits them down at the table and just the silence and just the smirk on Mark Antony's face when they when he sees them I had
1: forgotten that I'd forgotten it so thank you for reminding me of that because I like Mark Antony's smirks he's so good at them isn't he
2: he's such a good smirker (laughs) (laughs) it's just like I think Mark Antony's got what you could maybe call a resting smirk face
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's so effortless
2: yeah 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 exactly (laughs) and he just flashes it out here little little smirk little smirk While all this is going on, Pompey is fleeing with a man with no nose, which sounds like that should be a song as well in the Disney musical. And he's taking his family. (laughs) I'm going to have to write this at some point now, aren't I? (laughs) Uh, He's taking his family to Egypt in disguise, uh, essentially with no soldiers. And they run into the now... No longer cast away Verenus and Pullo washed up on the shore. What a yeah. coincidence.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. Not only are Varinus and Pullo the only survivors of that shipwreck, but they just happened to run into Pompey. Yeah. Clearly, Greece is not very big. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is, well, this was my theory about why they weren't at Pharsalus, so this could happen. Mm. Although you had one based on uh, finances, which might well be the real reason. And also, they get to. Discuss the battle and even talk about the 13th Legion and mm. one of the battles during the Gallic Wars that so the 13th Legion was at, at Alessia, which is uh, in Book Seven of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and you know one of the really well the climactic battle. I guess it's a mirror situation, isn't it? Because they talk about how it was sixty thousand men against twice as many Gauls, yes, and the Romans win, mm-hmm. and Caesar has just fought a battle against twice as many of Pompey's soldiers, and yet he has won. So just never bet against Caesar, I think, is the message here.
0: Of course, I do not say I am, who you think I am, but I've spent some years in the army. Perhaps we met on some campaign or other. Perhaps that's why I seem familiar. Perhaps. I recall the 13th was at a leisure. It was. There's a battle I've always wished to have seen. 25 miles of works, wasn't it? Yeah, 30. 30? How many men did you have? 60,000. Against, well, almost double the Gauls? At least double. The best men of every tribe in Gaul. Ah. Seizing and fight. I'll give him that.
2: I love in those scenes how Pompey is going, you know, if I were who you say I was, not that <laughs> I am, of course, but somebody in that sort of situation, perhaps dressed as a general and being dashingly handsome would tell you this. And so he's talking about himself in phrases that aren't talking about himself. And Verenus just sees through it all, mm. but he knows of it. It was a great scene. I, I loved it. And, I think that a third reason why they did this was so that you could see some more of Ken Cranham, who nails Pompey in these scenes. I think he's such a good actor in these moments, Mm. and this these scenes are, from my view, the best that you get from Pompey in Rome, HBO.
1: Well, you're not going to get much more, so enjoy it. No, I know that. I know that, but they they
2: they save the good bits till till now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is a nice scene because it's this. Guy who has—they've both kind of done their time in the army, haven't they? So they—they they understand one another. I think that's the way you're meant to read this, and yes. it does lead into then, of course, that Varina should have taken Pompey prisoner. Mm. He'd have been a great coup, but he lets him go, and I guess that's the reason he lets him. One of the reasons he lets him go—he—he he feels empathy for him.
2: Okay, and time now for an interview. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Ken Cranham, who played Caesar's rival and frenemy, Pompey Magnus. Ken's had a long career in acting and has many fond memories of filming Rome, particularly, it seems, of all the Italian food he got to eat while he was over on the continent. Word for the warning, there is spoilers for the rest of this episode, of course, and also slight spoilers for the next episode of Rome concerning the fate of Pompey. I was fortunate enough to speak to Ken over the phone. Apologies for the audio quality. Here's that interview.
3: No, the whole thing about um, Rome is is that... uh, in my mid-twenties, I was in a film called Brother, Sun Sister, Moon, Pratella, Sola, Sorella, Luna, for yeah. Zeffirelli.
2: Yeah.
3: And it was nine months on location in Italy. Right. And none of it was in the studio. Yeah. And because Zeffirelli was a Florentine snob, he just knew all these medieval towns and cities that we could we could work in. And so it was an extraordinary experience. We had three months in a C C all of it was on location. And he found up in the mountains this field which had once been a Roman lake, which was was now all wildflowers. And he had St. Francis's Church built there, and he could point the camera wherever he wanted. There were no telegraph poles, mm. nothing. It was a place called Castelluccia, and we all stayed in a hotel, which was a sort of winter hotel, but it was a bit a bit like that hotel in The Shining. We were the only people there. Yeah,
0: yeah.
3: And in the valley was a place called Nortgia, and... The food in Nortia is exquisite, and it's where the truffles come from. If you go to a delicatessen in London, the truffles will, they're Nortia truffles. And there was a restaurant there called the Albergo del Posta, Mm. the post. And they used to cook on the open fire, and they'd do one dish which was a pork sausage, a pig's liver in vine leaves, and a pork steak done on the fire. They do a similar thing with lamb. And they used to have fresh... River trout with truffles. They had pasta with truffles. It was the most amazing food ever. And, and and so we'd be up in the mountains all day, and every night we would go down into norcia to this place. Mm. And all you'd think about all day is, what am I going to eat tonight? And um, <laughs> it had such an effect on me, Italy, that I really... Ever since, have tried to eat really well every day. Mm -hmm. We had had to ride horses, and we all had to wear suits of armor. Mm. And two of us were in suits of armor made out of lead, because Zeffirelli liked the lack of sheen on lead. He liked this. He liked it pictorially. (laughs) Yeah. But you wear a, a suit of armor made of lead. And you have this enormous pair of lead trousers on on, on thick braces, mm. and it's pulling you down inside the tunic of the armor, and you feel like a dwarf inside a stove. But anyway, and they never used that sequence in the film, it they never even made it to the film. Yeah. But, but it did instill in me a great joy of being in Italy. Mm. And then I had to wait, you know, something like, I don't know. Thirty-five years or something before I got there again, mm-hmm. and then I was in Rome, and you know all this anyway. But they actually built a fiberglass ancient Rome
2: yes, at the yeah. film
3: studio. I mean, you—you mm. you, when you walked in the streets, you really believed you were in Rome. You could actually walk in the streets of ancient Rome.
0: Mm.
3: Now, this is unusual, but they intended quite a few. Series of Rome's. I mean, they they ended up just making two mm. series. I think I think it was intended to go on longer, and I think it got burnt down or something. This al- it was always happening in Italy. This <laughs> always mm. something mm. dodgy happens with fire and insurance at a certain point. You know, it's a sort of it's quite a sort of it's a, an odd place like that. But all of us who were in Rome, we all became. Very bonded. It's a bit like doing. National service together when you when you serve in an army together, yeah you, know, you get drilled and you do boot camp and all the rest of it. Me and Caesar became very close we 're still very good friends, and also with Paul Jessen and Carl Johnston. there were friendships stuck up which have you know, and really it was like being in the army together. You sort of mm-hmm. have something mm-hmm. you can refer back to because he filmed it in rome and if you 're playing Pompey. And you go and see this huge building, and it it, it was Pompey's building. That was his building.
2: Oh, the theatre,
3: yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it's very extraordinary to play somebody and to see Pompey's theatre and stuff like that, which were connected with him. It's to just walk about and see things which are connected with, with the character that you're playing.
2: The very first scene that you were in in the show was uh, where the, uh, your wife... Loses the child. Uh, Yeah, and she dies, so that's uh, Julius Caesar's daughter, Julia. It was our introduction to your character, and you you brought such emotion to that. Was that the first thing you filmed? Do you remember filming that scene?
3: Myself and that actress had never met till that day on the set.
2: I thought that might be the case,
3: yeah. Yeah,
2: that must have been very difficult.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That was the case. I mean, what an Mm. extraordinary way to meet someone.
2: Yeah, you go from that, and your character goes through such a, a journey in seven episodes I think you are in, uh, from, from that to uh, being a senator, to being in the battle scenes, to wearing armor again, wearing armor. Then, you know, essentially hopping out of a boat on the coast of Egypt. I doubt it was filmed there. And, and being stabbed by a guest actor, I suppose, <laughs> at that point. Um, so, yeah, um, can you tell me, you know, between being a, a senator and being um, on the battlefield, what, what was your, your favorite Pompey to play? But
3: the the thing about that show was, if you played somebody that actually existed, mm. you had to obey their history. Yes. So I had to get my head cut off. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, um, but if you played somebody f- fictitious, you got a second series. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were much better off being fictitious. <laughs> I was the first to go. And then the next would be Caesar, I suppose. A
2: couple of episodes later, yeah.
3: Right, that's right. But uh but he he and I became very, very close friends mm. and still are. And we text each other and I and I'm Pomps and he's Jules. <laughs> <laughs> I mean sometimes in Ginichitta, there was a on the other side of the of the motorway there was a a restaurant where they they didn't mind you they liked people being in costume and we used to go and have lunch there so all of us would be in roman costume having lunch in a in a big restaurant it, it was much better food than the the canteen back at the studios yeah. so that was something we used to do
2: Would you be in the suit of armor or would you be in the um, in the toga
3: Yeah in the toga yeah you didn't you didn't have a long lunch break to to change clothes, you just had to stay in costume
0: mm.
3: and try not to drop any food on it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the real Pompey would have had pizza stains on his tiger if they had pizza back then. So <laughs> exactly,
3: exactly. But it it was um an an extraordinary experience, the whole thing. I mean, it's um mm. what I do if I can do it and I've done that more and more, mm. it is I always take the train if I can rather than fly. Mm. I find if I take the train that I look forward to the journey. I don't look forward to the journey flying. Mm. And, um, and you can get a train from London. If you get, spend the night in Paris, then in the morning there's a uh, the train around about sort of 10 o'clock in the morning that takes you across the Alps to mm. Rome.
2: Yeah, I've caught that train, yeah, yeah.
3: You caught it? From Paddington Station to Rome, yeah. Fantastic, well mm. done. And um, I, I spent the night with Caesar in Paris, he lives in Paris, and and he gave me a really good bottle of wine, and I caught that train, and I had the Bob Dylan book, No Direction, that he wrote. I read the entire book. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> from between stations, before I got to Rome, and, the, and, and,
2: and you crossed the Rubicon. And,
3: yeah, across the Rubicon, and um, and my father, he, my mother died, and my my dad had nursed her for for f- five years, and he, he'd never been on Eurostar or anything, mm. and uh, I actually took him with me all the way to Rome by train. He was with me for a week in in Rome. That yeah, was a great treat. And he came out to the the studio and sat and watched it all being made.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I ask you about your death scene? Did they make a cast of your head or anything? Because in yes, the next yeah, episode... I'm, I'm, I'm
3: afraid that's... There's, a, there's a, a famous horror film called Hellraiser 2. And I had a cast made of my head for that because I had to lose my head in that. And I had to lose my head in Rome. and. yeah. Uh, it's the most awful experience because um, they always sort of take you to a place, and you're sitting in this sort of back room somewhere, and you think it's it's rooms like this where they torture people. You know, there's a sort of an old sort of calendar on the wall and stuff like that, and uh, <laughs> and they and they pour this gloop over your head,
0: oh, which no, then
3: yeah. sets and that actually contracts onto your head. Yeah. and they put short straws up your nose so you can breathe. It's fantastically claustrophobic.
0: Yeah. It's
3: the longest 25 minutes you've ever had in your life. And yeah. so that's happened to me twice now. <laughs> but there was, a, there, was a, there was a television critic in London said that she thought that I was actually underneath the platter that my... I was, was,
2: hard, I was, Well, look, you were credited in the episode, and it was just your head. <laughs> I, I was kind of wondering,
3: surely it wouldn't have been him. <laughs> no, it wasn't, wasn't me, but I'm, maybe I got a bit more money for that, do you think? I don't know. You, you, you
2: are credited in the episode, and that is the extent of it. You are a head on a platter. So I'm, did you at least get to keep the head?
3: <laughs> no, I didn't. I should have tried to do that. I have got a photo of it however, with my own head next to it. So uh, it's quite a nice...
2: Look, if if you can email that to me, I would love to see it. So <laughs> was was the last scene you filmed then being killed in on the edge of the water?
3: I don't know. I don't mm. know. I can't remember now. Well, do, um, do, you, do you remember doing that scene? Oh, could you, if it had been you, you'd remember it. I mm. tell you. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
3: You know, because you have to fall on your knees and, and get your head cut off. I mean, you actually, it's almost as if it's its happening for real. You know, mm. it's a very extraordinary sequence, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your your wife and your children are on the boat watching it all. And it, this is insane. Oh, and I, I
3: remember my, my, my doctor in London, she said to me, and I wonder what happened to them.
2: Mm. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I doubt anything good. Can you tell me, um, just as a last thing, is is there any scene that kind of really stands out as as your favourite that you
3: did in Rome? Oddly enough, that scene with my losing the wife in childbirth was was so extraordinary to have not met that girl ever and to have to do that out of nowhere. Yeah. It's quite shocking. There's an extraordinary thing that happens with, with filming. Very often you don't get any rehearsal. The only rehearsal you get... It's putting your costume on and seeing yourself in a mirror. That's the only idea you have of what you're going to present of yourself. Mm. And, and, and a scene like that, to actually have to jump in with that level of emotion and feeling, is, is quite sort of startling. That's almost the one I remember most. And her and I have been friends since then, too.
2: Thanks to Ken Cranham for that interview. And we'll now rejoin the episode. So, Varinus and Paulo, I was about to say Ken, let Pompey go. So, Pompey goes off on a boat to Egypt with his family. And Varinus and Paulo end up in Caesar's tent having to explain their actions to him. Mark mm-hmm. Antony is to the side with resting smirk face. And Caesar lets Varinus off the hook. Varinus explains his argument for letting pompey go which is essentially nothing (laughs) and caesar lets him go i think doesn't verenus say
1: that he pompey is a man defeated
2: who is verenus to make that call yeah i'm i'm completely with resting smirk face at this point you you know one how dare you let pompey go and two why aren't you punishing verenus
1: Yeah, well, look, even Caesar says, I ought to have you scourged and crucified.
2: Yeah, he gets gets very tetchy, but you know Caesar should be more than tetchy.
1: (laughs) There's a couple of possible explanations for, I mean, this is obviously like many of Varinus' actions, given that he's just a a minor pop-up character in the Gallic Wars. Everything is extended from that. So this is not anything based on, we have to kind of speculate what might have happened if a soldier Mm. had let Pompey go. And that's what's happening here. One Caesar is known for mercy, although more with the big names See mm-hmm. Brutus and Cicero above, uh probably not so much with his uh his troops, who he really needs to keep discipline amongst. two we've already seen the amount of respect he has for Pompey, this idea that's been built up that mm. he almost doesn't want to defeat him. He almost wishes he would just go away or not be a problem anymore or come round to him, yeah. I think that feeds into all of that. And it's Mark Antony who is the real, you know, he definitely wouldn't have let Varinus live having done that. No, But I think Varinus, in a way, is sort of tapping into that aspect of Caesar that is not happy with civil war. I mean, we know that Varenus is not happy with the idea of civil war. He really didn't want to join up for this, did he?
2: Mm-hmm. And also we've got uh, Caesar's explanation, which he does give to Mark Antony in the episode, which is, you know, the gods watch over these people and you do not mess with the gods.
3: They have
0: powerful gods on their side and I will not kill any man with friends of that sort.
1: And that I do find quite plausible. There's definitely this idea of certain people being blessed, you know, the word Mm. felix, happy, blessed. This is something that the previous dictator, Sulla, had played into, and he had used that epithet for himself. And that might be something that that holds a lot of sway with a a Roman leader.
2: Okay, so uh, now we get to... Uh, Pompey's death scene which from what I could see was essentially plucked straight from the pages of Plutarch. I really like this scene. Uh, He gets off the little boat wades through the water and he's met by a soldier named Septimius, no relation, Uh, and Septimius tells him, which was a bit of colour that we didn't really need, that he was a soldier who once served with Pompey. How are you going, old mate? Have one of these, stabs him first and then chops his head off. And it's yeah. done very dramatically, uh, looked great, looked hugely uncomfortable to film uh, with the family <laughs> looking on.
1: That does come from our sources that uh, Pompey's family, it's right there in Plutarch. Cornelia, she's very suspicious and she is still watching when Pompey is killed, Mm. which is kind of horrific to think about. So this Septimius, it's the fact that it's a Roman who's working for the Egyptian, uh, for Ptolemy, that actually does it. I guess that makes it worse, that it's not an Egyptian who Mm. dispatches Pompey, but a Roman himself. I, I like the details. This is a really, I mean, I think I almost like the Plutarch description more than the HBO Rome that draws closely on it because it has little details in it, like Pompey took a little roll containing a speech written by him in Greek. So he's got this speech prepared to give to Ptolemy, to the ruler mm. of Egypt. Um, and he's, he's actually beginning to read it. He's reading um, his lines. He's practicing. his <laughs> Yeah, he's practicing it as he comes in. And there's this anxiety built up by uh, the fact that Cornelia is very anxious. Um, and... Pompey is, you know, he he grasps the hand of somebody who's assisting him and he's he's run in from behind by Septimius in in Plutarch. Mm. I guess in the series Septimius pretends to embrace him, doesn't he? Yeah, he he, he so.
2: clasps his wrist to help him off the boat mm. and um like you know pulls him in close then. Yeah. And then kind of shives him. Is that a thing? Anyway,
1: I think we understand. Sure. In, in in our Plutarch source, we get actually three murderers because we get Septimius running him through with a sword, uh, then someone called Salvius, and then uh, a Greek name Aquilas drawing daggers and stabbing him. So they really want to make sure he's dead. There's a lot of wounds, mm. which I'm I'm sure is description, you know, of the stabbing although not of what comes after that which is meant to remind the reader of what's coming up for caesar am i allowed to say that
2: i think we all kind of know is that a spoiler (laughs) (laughs) look anyone who's listening to this podcast on a 15 year old television show (laughs) knows what's coming for caesar
1: And look, the description of what Pompey does as well. I know this is Plutarch, not what we see in the series, but I do love it. Mm. Uh, It's a a murder scene. I shouldn't really love it. But it's just very dramatic and sad. So he goes on, and Pompey drawing his toga down over his face with both hands, which is a kind of sign of almost like you're trying to protect yourself with the toga, but also mourning without an act or a word that was unworthy of himself, but with a groan merely submitted to their blows, Mm. being 60 years of age, less one, and ending his life only one day after his birthday. It's very sad and lyrical, I think. Although the age is probably wrong. Um, in fact, I think it is wrong, isn't it? If my maths is right, he was born in uh, 106. Uh, and this is 48 BCE. Can you do the maths? Nah, uh, you're on your
2: own. <laughs> 52.
1: No, so he's 58, not 59.
2: Okay. Yeah. That is the Battle of Pharsalus. I, I wish there was more of a showdown between Caesar and Pompey, uh, something a bit more dramatic, but this is what the episode's given us. Uh, do you have anything else to to say? Oh, I, I, sorry. Uh, do you have anything to say about Attia and Octavia's uh, sexual relationship? Atia and Octavia. Wow. They, they surprisingly didn't go that route. They'll go Octavia you know and, and Octavia soon, but okay. You
1: know what? I don't think I do. I think... I think we've said enough i don't think i do want to go you don't want
2: to those. say anything about her masturbating to the magna mater no, while she's really praying don't. or anything no no okay all right we're going to end this on a classy note then <laughs> exactly you've been listening to Racing standards an occasional rewatch podcast for hbo's Rome, with rhiannon evans and matt smith if you like this podcast you can subscribe in apple podcasts spotify or wherever you may cast your pod Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Evans. I am at NightlightGuy, and the podcast is at RomePodcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.